You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. So as Reed said, we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians over the past couple of months. And last week, we started a new smaller sermon series within a larger sermon series in which we're going through from chapter 8 through chapter 10. And the consistent theme is a call for Christians to be servants. Last week we talked about the important and really undeniable call on the Christian to live a life that is sacrificial and loving in the interest of our Christian brothers and sisters. Really for the sake of the souls of any of our fellow brothers and sisters, churchmen and women, we are called to lay down any right or privilege or preference or freedom. Even the things we might find most enjoyable or most defendable. If our participation in those things would lead a brother or sister to stumble into sin. To have a conscience full of doubt and contrition. And this week as we move into chapter 9, we really move from Paul talking about the issue at hand to turning the conversation on himself as an example. See, last week Paul addressed this specific issue in Corinth, and if you weren't here, I'd highly suggest you listen to the podcast because I don't have time to unpack it all this morning. But, but put simply, the Corinthians, some of the Christians in Corinth, were eating Food offered to pagan gods in pagan temples and some of the other Christians in Corinth really had a problem with that. And so Paul called the Corinthians to lay down their right to go and feast on this idol food in idol temples because it was leading people into idol worship. He called them to lay down the rights for the sake of loving their brothers and sisters. And this morning as he turns the conversation on himself... His purpose will not be to show that he's superior to the Christians in Corinth, but really in order to ask them to ask themselves a question. In light of what Paul tells us about himself and the way he's approached the Christian life, this morning we will have to come to terms and answer this question. To what lengths will we go as a church or as individuals in order to display Christ's love most clearly. Hear what Paul writes in verses 1 through 7. He says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? As do the other apostles and the brothers of our Lord and Cephas. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So Paul follows what he 
talked about in chapter 8 by turning the conversation on himself. And really what he's doing is beginning in the first few verses of this chapter to make it clear that he possesses all of the same rights that the Christians do in Corinth. Moreover, he has the rights of not only a Christian or church member, but as an apostle, as one who had a face-to-face encounter with the resurrected Lord Jesus who called him to a ministry to the Gentile nations. And he's saying, do I not also have rights? Do I not also have freedom? Am I not a Christian and an apostle and a church planter and a pastor? And really what he gets to in verse 4 is he begins talking about this right that he has to eat and drink. And he's not talking about the right that the Corinthians were arguing for, to eat and drink food and drink offered to idols, but he's simply arguing for the right to eat and drink because he's hungry and thirsty. What he's talking about is a simple right to be fed and to be nourished. And really as he goes on, what's going to become clear is that Paul is making the case that as an apostle and a church planter and a pastor, that he has not only a logical right, but a biblical right to be paid for his labor. He's saying that it is right for him to be paid because he is preaching the gospel and planting churches and it's a full-time job. Hear what he says in verses 8 through 16. He says, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox which treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing some of the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things? If others share the rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So as Paul continues, he's making it clear that there is a right and a freedom and really a call and demand for pastors and apostles and church planters to be paid for their work. He cites the Old Testament. He cites the words of Jesus in order to show that those who labor in the work of preaching and teaching and leading and planting and shepherding God's church is work that is deserving of generous pay. And this isn't the only place in the New Testament where we see this. 
Really throughout the New Testament, Paul and the other apostles will make it clear that pastors who labor full-time in the work of ministry should be paid generously for their labor. And that, that shouldn't really surprise us. And after all, it is laid upon the pastors and elders of a church to clearly and accurately know, study, and communicate the mystery and the truths of God's Word. It is laid upon them to care for and shepherd God's people throughout trials and sin. They're called to oversee the discipline of the church. Consistently calling the people of God back to obedience to God. And maybe most importantly, one day the elders and leaders of the church will one day give an account before God, not only for their own soul or the souls of their wives and children, but for the souls of everyone whom God has put under their trust. And so Paul is saying, if, if this is my task, wouldn't it be right that I am paid for it? And right now you're thinking, man, this is a sermon to get Marshall and Reed a raise. And that is not at all what the purpose of this sermon is. Although Reed did want to meet with the FST after they got it. <laughs> really, what is at the heart of this sermon, what is at the heart of this text, is that Paul is, is making an argument not out of bitterness. Not out of bitterness that the Corinthians haven't paid him, but rather what he makes clear is that he had the right to be paid and freely chose to forfeit that right. If we look elsewhere in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts, we'll see the story of Paul coming to the church in Corinth when he began preaching the gospel in the city of Corinth to both Jews and Gentiles. And really what happened is he made some initial friends, some people who knew the Lord, who also had the same trade as him as a tent maker. And quickly in his time in Corinth, he fell out of favor with the Jews there. They were not pleased that he was preaching the gospel of Jesus. And so he fell out of favor with his own people in a city where he was the minority, and he began began focusing primarily on reasoning with the Gentiles, the, the Greeks and the Romans in Corinth, in regards to the gospel. And what we know about Paul's time in Corinth is that he worked full-time as a tent maker, doing hard and, and physical labor, working by the sweat of his brow in probably a hot workshop to, to build tents to provide for himself a place to stay and food to eat, not laying any of that burden on the people of God in the city. even though the Bible expresses clear precedent for him to do so. In fact, this text, Paul almost makes it sound like he's walking borderline in disobedience with Jesus by not being paid for his work. But in verse 12, Paul says this. He says, nevertheless, we, and when Paul says we, he usually means I, we have not made use of this right, this right to be paid. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So Paul didn't come into Corinth and refuse pay 
for his work, and he didn't, he didn't come into the Corinth and, and find a job as a tent maker out of pride. He, he didn't do this because he was too proud to raise funds or to ask the Christians to, to pay for him to have a place to sleep and some food to eat. He refused to be paid so that the Corinthians would have a better opportunity of truly hearing, receiving, and responding to the gospel. He says that he would rather endure anything than there be an obstacle between people and the gospel of Jesus. But our question now has to be, what would that obstacle be? What would the obstacle be between the people in Corinth and hearing and believing the gospel so much that Paul saw fit to probably work 70 to 80 hour work weeks as a tent maker and preaching the gospel in the public squares in his free time, sacrificing energy, sleep, and finances for this work? What was the obstacle? We have no reason to believe that it was money, that, that, that the Corinthians were poor. Earlier in the letter, Paul talks about how some of the members of the congregation were of noble birth. And so we have reason to believe that there was plenty of money in Corinth from which Paul could raise funds. Seeing that it was in the first century, we don't have any reason to believe that that the people in Corinth had been burned previously by maybe some prosperity gospel preacher raising funds for his next private jet. Right, like That's not what Paul was going up against, but the question is what was the obstacle in the way of the gospel? And, and to be honest, it took me a long time to, to come to any sort of conclusion. But what I found is this, is that in the Greco-Roman world in which Corinth was firmly seated, physical labor was reserved for people who were slaves or bondservants. Anyone who did the work of building tents would have been a slave or a bondservant in Corinth. And what there certainly wouldn't be in the city of Corinth was a philosopher or a spiritual teacher or some sort of religious guru that would do the work of a tent maker. They would be seen as a lowly citizen. And so why on earth would Paul, who is studied and learned in the Word of God, who, who is regularly used to reasoning in the market with philosophers and academics, why would he think that it was in some way strategic for his ministry to present himself to a vain and intellectual society as a slave? What could be gained for Paul by being viewed as a slave or a bondservant in a city that valued vanity and intellectualism and philosophy and boasting. Well, if we were to go back into the first couple of chapters of 1 Corinthians, here's what we'd see. It is there's a theme of Paul making it clear over and over and over again that he came to Corinth preaching the simplicity of Jesus crucified for the saving of sinners. He, he says that he, he didn't come with, with fancy language and diction. He didn't come to present himself as the chief philosopher in a city of philosophers. 
He didn't present the gospel as the ultimate religious belief in, in a city that liked to argue about what was right wisdom. He didn't use impressive language and crafty arguments to prove this Jesus-crazed worldview that he had. What Paul wanted to do was make it abundantly clear to the culture a culture that's caught up in seeking the wisdom of the world that he has something fundamentally different. Paul was so convinced that the way of the gospel must be presented in, the, in Corinth is, is that he would work long hours if it meant he wouldn't be confused for just another philosopher if his message wouldn't be confused for just another spiritual teaching, Paul was willing to sacrifice all of his status, all of his acclaim, all of the respect that he could gain. He was willing to sacrifice hard work and his time. He was willing to sacrifice being ridiculed and thought lowly of if people would understand that the message he was preaching was unlike any message they had heard before. It was also strategic for Paul to not be paid because he didn't want to be viewed as maybe the mouthpiece of a rich man or a few wealthy benefactors. Paul was God's mouthpiece, not a rich man's mouthpiece. So last week we said that lives which lack sacrifice are lives that lack love. What we see here is that Paul is displaying clearly that his love for the Corinthians and for the ministry of the gospel was marked by great sacrifice. It's the proof of his love that, that there is sacrifice in his way. How is it that Paul could, could give up so much? It wasn't for a claim. It wasn't that he would be respected and admired. It certainly wasn't so that he could become rich. What Paul knew is something that we would all do well to know. And that's that his Christian freedoms, the very Christian freedoms that he's argued for, the freedom to be paid, the freedom to eat and drink freely, whatever he wants, the freedom to use his time as he sees fit, the freedom to flex his relationships as he sees fit. He knew that those freedoms were best used and most rewarding when he gave them away for the sake of the gospel being made clear to others. Paul proclaimed the gospel freely because it's a gospel of freedom. And it's easy, I think, for, for us, if, if you're at all like me, to read about the sacrifices that the Apostle Paul made and kind of have a callous attitude. Like there's some way in which Paul had to be some sort of spiritual superhero that we're not, that, that he would be willing to make these sacrifices for the sake of the gospel. Or maybe we'll begin saying, well, he saw the Lord face to face. Of course he was willing to go to, to more lengths than we are. But if we're honest, we would remember what we talked about last week. That really the reason that we often 
hold on to our rights, that we claim our freedoms at the expense of others, at the expense of gospel ministry, is simply that we're selfish. It has nothing to do with Paul being on another spiritual level as us. It has everything to do with us loving ourselves more than we love others or the Lord. But the overall message of the book of 1 Corinthians would suggest that it's even more than simple selfishness. It's something that Marshall's talked about time and time again. And it's that, that as the people of God, far too often we have an identity crisis. For me, I know this is true. All too often we define ourselves. Or assume that others will define us based on our titles, our status our talents, our resume, our experiences, the things we own, our income, where we live, the people that we spend our time with. Really, one thing that I'm often tempted to believe is that I'm most free when I'm most important or most impressive. That that is the maxim of human freedom, to be important or impressive or well compensated. But Paul knew better. See, Paul knew that in spite of his impressive resume, in, in spite of his rousing testimony, read Philippians 3 if you're interested in that, he knew that those things don't define him. See, Paul didn't care if the Corinthians are impressed with him. In fact, it seems that he's doing everything within his power so that they won't be. He knows that they shouldn't be impressed with him or with any other man. He wants them to be impressed and in awe of the God of the universe. See, Paul knows that sacrifices in the Christian life erase barriers between people and the gospel. He knows this because sacrifices not only have the practical effect of removing barriers, but but in and of themselves, sacrifices proclaim the gospel that's inherently sacrificial. Sacrifice is important in gospel ministry because God's good news for the people of God is that he sacrificed everything in order to give them a new identity. See, God surrendered his rights and liberty and glory to enter human skin. He surrendered heavenly wealth to become a homeless rabbi. He surrendered the endless praise of angels in the heavenly courts to the sounds of scoffing and ridicule and curses and accusation. He surrendered a seat in the place where he created all life to be subject to his creation in order to have his life ended. He surrendered his righteousness, his holiness, and his glory to be punished as an unrighteous, shameful sinner. 
And then with all the power of heaven and all the weight of eternity and all the awesomeness of creation, he went from being a dead, seemingly failed prophet and revolutionary to begin moving his fingers and toes and arms and legs and rising up in his tomb to remove the burial rags, to reign and rule over all things for all time, to establish life and righteousness and glory in the very souls of those who deserve to be dead. Church, in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and in the power of his resurrection, every single barrier that existed between God and humanity has been brought to nothing. That's good news. It's so good that we, with Paul, can freely give away any of our rights. no matter how painful it might be in order to prevent barriers between people and that good news. To be free is not to have all the things that we can justify having. To be free isn't to have an impressive title or status or renown or wealth. To be free isn't to be important or powerful. Freedom isn't found in affirmation or human affection. Freedom, church, is knowing that in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and in the resurrection that you've been reconciled to the God of the universe for all of eternity. That is freedom. It's the only real freedom that there is. And when we get that, when we taste that and see that and grasp it in all of its majesty, then we'll be willing to give up any amount of money or time or status or prestige or honor or dignity or relationship or habit in order to freely invite others into that freedom. When we see the beauty of the gospel, when we feel the weight of its freedom, we will willingly invite sacrifice into our lives. We will invite the sacrifice of our preferences and our cultural norms in order to make this local church more inviting to an infinitely diverse group of people who might be brought to us. When we recognize the freedom and security we have in the gospel, we will be more willing and ready to link arms with our brothers and sisters leading the garden initiative here at Sojourn Mantras that we might be a more diverse and invitational church. When we see the beauty of the gospel and feel the weight of all of its freedom, we'll be willing to give our time to our neighbors who don't know the Lord. Some of us, when we experience and taste and see and are moved by the freedom we have in Christ, will not see the sacrifice of our comfort and relationships and routine in the neighborhood of Montrose as something we're unwilling to sacrifice to move to the East End and plant a church in a neighborhood that we're less familiar with. When we understand that our time and our money and our wealth and all of these things are not what's important but that our freedom in Christ is what's important. We will freely give of our finances not only to the local church but to church planters locally and globally. Talk to Carlos. (laughs) Talk to one of our global church planting partners. 
Talk to Paul Ramsey preparing to plant a church in Brazewood. See, when we experience these things, and we'll be called to sacrifice, this local church will be called to sacrifice our preferences, we'll be called to sacrifice our desires, we'll be called to sacrifice our routines and our norms and any number of things. Our comfort is in Christ, not in our worldly comforts. So we should invite discomfort into our lives that other people might experience the freedom of the gospel. And church, those changes can and will come. Like as a church that is devoted to making disciples in every nook and cranny and neighborhood in the city of Houston through church planting, none of us are safe. None of us are safe from giving of our time, giving of our home, giving of our finances to see to it that every man, woman, and child in the city of Houston has an opportunity to engage with and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which makes slaves free, which makes dead men live, which makes addicts free from addiction, which makes the poor rich in spirit. We will always be called to sacrifice and lay down our rights and comfort for the sake of fulfilling the mission of God to see all people come to know him. Hear what Paul says in verses 17 and 18. He says, For for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul says that in the reality of having laid down his right to be paid for the work of ministry, he says that he considers it his very reward to do so. He says that he preaches the gospel without being compelled by financial restitution, but that in this very thing, he is rewarded. I know for me, I think of pay as my reward for my labor, but Paul says that his labor is in and of itself the reward. His reward is the right to freely proclaim the gospel without asking anything in return. He made himself the cultural equivalent of a slave. He spoke simply and plainly when he certainly had the ability and the education to challenge any philosopher in the area of diction and rhetoric. He took on the reproach of his fellow Jews and he did all of this so that people would be able to hear that God has made himself available to him to them through his son and that they should put their hope in him. Paul was a servant in Corinth. He was a servant of Christ and he was still more free than anyone else in the city when he got there because he was one who was forgiven and able to invite others into that freedom. So Sojourn Montrose, let us be a church that's willing to change. 
a church that's willing to surrender and sacrifice and work as hard as it takes in order to make it clear that God is gracious and good and that there's not a single barrier between him and people who need him because of what his son has accomplished. Let us be as slaves and servants if it is what will allow people to be free. See, Christ has given all of himself to us. He's given all of himself to us that we might be free and we can freely give all of ourselves to others in order that they might also be freed from the shackles of whatever identity it is that they're clinging to so that they can rest in a new identity as one who is beloved, as one who is holy, as one who is a secure child of God. And let us see inviting others into that as our chief reward. So Christians, I invite you to to surrender more of yourself. To invite sacrifice and change and the forfeit of your rights and preferences that not only your fellow church members, but that our neighbors might experience the love of God. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and and you've not yet put your hope in Christ. And now you know two things very well. That the Christian life is one of sacrifice, so count the cost, but it's one of ultimate freedom. And so we invite you to consider that in what God has accomplished for us through his son, that you also might be made free from any identity you're clinging to, to be called a son or a daughter of the Most High God. And that you can join us in a a sacrificial life that is more rewarding than any other. Let's pray. Lord, take our wills. And take our hearts. Let our wills no longer be our own, but let them be yours for your glory and let our hearts be as a royal throne for your majesty. I pray that you would crush selfishness and any sort of identity we might be holding on to or seeking to build up other than that of being your children. Make this a church that not only now, but for decades lays down our rights for the sake of our neighbors. And Lord, we pray that through that, you would establish a revival in this neighborhood that many men, women, and children would come to know you and the truth of your gospel. And we ask that you'd do that in all neighborhoods in our city. Lord, we are thankful for your gift. Let us not take it for granted. In Jesus' name we pray.